Uh, this morning, as I said, we're going to finish up chapter 15 of the book of Acts. We're going to jump back in, uh, and then we will spend most of our time in Acts 16. But there's a little bit I want to talk about today at the end of 15, because this section that we're looking at today is really about community and relationships. Our God is a God of community and relationship. He has eternally been in perfect community and relationship within himself, within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all uncreated, all eternal, all perfectly in relationship, submitting, encouraging, building up, lifting up, uh, all of those things together perfectly forever. And then when we see in creation, what happens is that God creates everything, right? Let there be light, it's good. Let there be the earth, it's good. The water, the birds, the fish, all of these things. God says it's good. He creates man and says it's good. And then we see in Genesis 2, Adam is in the garden and there's animals parading by him as he is trying to uh, not only name, but also just to try and find something in creation that can connect with him, something he can have community and relationship with. And he can't do it. And God, before the serpent, before the fruit, before all of the things that happened in, in Genesis 3, God sees Adam in the garden and he says, this is not good. It's not good that man is alone. It's not good that he doesn't have someone. He doesn't have community. He doesn't have relationship. He doesn't have fellowship. And so then God creates Eve. When God calls Abraham, when he, back before he was even Abraham, when he was Abram, and he calls him into a relationship, and he says, I want you to leave everything you know, and I want you to go to a place. I'm going to tell you when to stop walking, but just go. And along the way, as Abram follows God and obeys God, and God starts this covenant relationship with him, he says, I'm going to bless you. And one of the ways I'm going to bless you is by giving you descendants, by giving you community and relationships. And those descendants are going to build a community and bless the entire world. Relationships and community, this is what we are made for, to be known and to know others on a deeper level. And so today's passage has a lot to do with community, with relationships, whether it's between individuals or groups or even relationship with God. It's within the confines of community. It's within the confines of relationship that we see the gospel go forward, not only in the book of Acts, but still here today. We see the gospel go forward in the confines of relationship. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in uh, to Acts and get to work. So please bow your heads and uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for, God, we thank you that we live in a city that uh, we experience all of the different seasons and the changing of them. And it's just that reminder to us that you are in control of all things. It's another reminder of your power and sovereignty, even over creation, as we see the weather change and the wind and the change in uh, nature, it all points back to you and your creative design. You didn't have to give us color. You didn't have to give us uh, the changing of scenery. You didn't have to give us any of these things, but you did because you care about us. It's a way for us to enjoy this thing you have made. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, not only here at CF, but around the city, but around the country, around the world. There are groups some loud with microphones and loudspeakers and blinking and light up signs outside and some quietly under hushed tones because they are hiding from government. But all around the world today on this day, this day that you have made your people gather around to worship, to celebrate, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be rebuked, to hear from you, to engage with you. As we engage with one another, as we open your word, as we sing, as we pray, as we do all of these things, we do all of these things that we might connect and hear from you. God, this morning, this is us coming 
and seeking and knocking. And you told us that if we do these things, you will be found. You will show up. And so, God, we pray that you would show up this morning, that as you do show up this morning, that we would be attentive to what you have for us, that we would be paying attention, that we would take it to heart, that we would allow the the distractions, the baggage, the different things that can get in the way of hearing from you and engaging with you this morning. We set those aside so that we can engage and hear from you. God, I pray that as I preach, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you would be made much of. Lord, we pray for the kids of our church up in Grace Place and the volunteers that are part of that ministry. Lord, we thank you for their heart, for the kids of this church, for their desire to teach and to equip and to show and reveal who you are to the kids of our church. Lord, we pray that you would save them, all of them, at a young age that they might walk with you for decades. God, we pray for the volunteers of Grace Place that they would continue to be strengthened with encouragement, with perseverance, with patience, with a a great, even newfound joy as they reveal to these kids who you are and how much you care about them and love them. Lord, we pray for the Brook as they celebrate this morning their nine-year anniversary as a church, Lord, and we thank you for Pastor Eric and for what that community has done in Montclair to serve and build up and reach out and connect with that neighborhood, to really put that neighborhood in a place where they know that if they need something, they can show up at the brook and they will find not only community, but help. God, we thank you for what you've done there, and we pray that you would continue to raise up those to serve and love and care in that place. And Lord, I pray for our church, for CF, as you continue to strengthen us and and call us together and bind, bind us up and strengthen us, Lord. We pray that more and more people would come to hear and know you, Lord. We pray that you would continue to send us guests and those who are searching, those who are seeking after you, those who have questions about who you are, that they might come to hear the gospel, know it, and believe it. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to send us those that are already part of your family, brothers and sisters in the faith who are looking for a place to rest, a place to engage, a place to call home. God, you are at work. This is your church. And so we thank you for giving it to us, and we thank you that you would allow us to be part of it. And we pray that we would continue to glorify and honor you in all that we do. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts uh, 15. We're going to end in Acts 15, or start at the end of Acts 15, sorry. So in verse 36. Um, and so after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they are separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia and strengthening the churches. Let's stop there. We're going to do this kind of in chunks this morning. So to catch you up, just as a reminder, because we didn't do Acts last week, um, but Acts 15 is about what's known as the Jerusalem Council. Leaders from the church in Antioch, leaders from the church in Jerusalem get together in God's city, and they sit and they talk because an issue has arisen that people are teaching the Gentile Christians in Antioch, they're teaching them they must be circumcised, they must follow the law of Moses in order to truly be part of the family of God. And so this council shows up in Jerusalem to say, we need to figure this out, we need to make an official declaration where do we stand on this because for thousands of years it was God and the Israelites 
and everyone to be a Jew, to be part of God's family, was to follow the law of Moses, was to follow and be circumcised. But now with these Gentile believers, things are different. Things have changed. And so in this council meeting, men like Paul and Barnabas, Peter, James, stand up and say, no, it is grace. These men, these women who have put their faith in Christ and him alone, that is enough. The laws of Moses no longer are needed, no longer apply. If you want to follow them on your own, sure, but do not follow them because you think it saves you. Do not follow them because you think it's going to make you right with God, but rather you can follow them as an act of worship, sure. But when we're talking about salvation, when we're talking about justified standing with God, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so they come together on this decision, and a letter is put together and sent to the believers in these different places, telling them, this, telling them, no, what you know, what you have heard, what you have been preached, this gospel message, that is all you need. And so we get to Paul and Barnabas, and, and Paul decides he wants to go on another journey. He's already taken one missionary journey. It was kind of by accident, because really it happens because he's being chased from city to city for preaching the gospel, and people are threatening his life. And so the first of Paul's missionary journeys is really just about self-preservation. But I love passages like this, even these couple of verses here, because it's this reminder to us that the Bible is real. And what I mean by real is that the Bible actually is the word of God given to us, because the Bible is not always the cleanest story. It's not always the nicest story. It shows us the things that we might not want to see or know about, like disagreements here, right? This is Paul and Barnabas getting to an argument, a sharp disagreement. We'll talk about that in a minute. These are the good guys. These are, these are the heroes, right? These are the good guys who are out preaching and planting churches, and they're getting into a fight. And not only that, but it's recorded by God forever in his word that they had this disagreement. I think if any normal person is writing this and you have the, the protagonist, the, the main good guys of the story, you're not going to make, make them look bad in any light, right? But this is God saying, look, it's real, and relationships are hard and messy. Disagreements can happen. And this is one of those times where the Bible says, Look, these things actually happen, and it's okay that we have these reminders. And so Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go on a road trip. Let's run it back. Let's go to all those different churches. Let's go to all those places that we planted these churches, and we preached the gospel, and men and women came to be saved. Let's go see them and see how they're doing and encourage them and build them up. Because Paul was concerned not with just how many people came to faith. He wasn't concerned with how many people prayed the prayer, how many people came forward, how many people got baptized. That's great, amen and amen, but he was more focused on how many disciples are we making, how many, how many people are growing in their faith. I think sometimes churches and church leaders, we get real concerned with numbers. We like to talk about how many people prayed the prayer, how many people we baptized this year, and amen, those things are happening, but what's that next step? Are we making disciples? Are we growing people in their faith? Are we helping them take steps to grow closer to God? And that's what Paul was concerned with. He wanted to see people growing in their relationship with God. And so one of the ways he wanted to do that was to go back and meet with those people and be able to preach and, and talk more and encourage them. And so Barnabas agrees. He says, yeah, it's a great idea, Paul. Let me go get John Mark, and we'll head out. And Paul disagrees with that idea because on the first time they went on this trip, John Mark left them. It's a verse, we read it in Acts 13, 13. It's kind of a verse you just kind of read and skip over. It says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's it. No big argument, no big scene. It's just they were traveling. John went back to Jerusalem. 
We have no detail as to why John Mark left. But whatever the reason or situation, it resulted in Paul not wanting him to come on this second journey. Now, some have said that maybe that's a, it was a character issue in regards to Mark's, you know, John Mark's maturity, or uh, maybe it was he just wasn't ready for the kind of trip. Whatever it was, we don't know the details. It's all kind of speculation. There are some translations of the Bible that will say that uh, Paul doesn't want him to come because John Mark deserted us on the last trip. Whatever the case, the language clearly says that Paul thinks John Mark was in the wrong. And Paul very clearly feels that way. Barnabas pushes back. He wants Mark to come with. Barnabas is Mark's cousin. He knows him better than anyone. He knows the good. He knows the potential in his cousin. He wants his family with him. And what have we seen of Barnabas throughout the book of Acts? He's the son of encouragement. He's the unifier. He's the one who brings people together. He's the one who, after Paul was saved and Paul went away for a little while, when he started to try and interact with the Christians, many of the Christians kind of said, no, you're the one who persecutes the the church. You're the one who's been trying to destroy us, and now you want to pretend like you're one of us? And it was Barnabas who vouched for Paul. It was Barnabas who said, no, his faith is genuine. He's one of us. He has come to accept and put his faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Invite him in. Welcome him in as a brother. And so this is Barnabas's character shining through. He's the one who wants to unify. And so he seeks unity, pushing that Mark should have a second chance. It says in verse 39, a sharp disagreement happened. A provoking kind of argument happened. This is escalated. This isn't just they didn't agree and they just kind of let it go. This was a sharp, intense, maybe close to coming to blows. This is an intense argument between these two. It was so strong it resulted in these two men separating. And as far as we know from the Bible, they don't serve again moving forward. We know later on at one point they're in the same place at the same time, but we don't really have any other record of the two of them really being in ministry together like they have been, like we've seen in Acts. What ends up happening is Barnabas and Mark, they go to Cyprus to minister there. That's the general area where Barnabas is from. And then Paul travels to Syria and Cilicia, and along the way he picks up Silas, who we've seen already. He was one of the ones sent from Jerusalem to bring that letter to the Gentiles as a representative of the Jewish Christians. And Silas and Paul kind of build this relationship, and along the way, Paul is also going to acquire some more traveling companions, as we'll see in a few minutes. But what I want to talk about in this section is that Christian disagreements happen, and that's okay. It's okay to disagree among Christians. In fact, I'd say it's inevitable. We have different experiences, different backgrounds, different generations, different educations, all mixed together, which means we're not all going to always think the same way about everything all the time, and that's okay. Not only are disagreements okay, but those disagreements even becoming sharp, heated, that's all right too. Paul is going to write in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin, meaning you can get angry with one another. You can get mad with one another. You can get frustrated with one another, but how you respond to that anger and frustration that's what's important it is possible to disagree argue and dispute in a way that is god honoring it's something that many people might hear in premarital counseling conversations learning how to fight fair issues are going to come up in marriage between spouses and spouses need to learn how to have those things happen without being mean without trying to intentionally hurt one another the same is true for relationships outside of marriage We are going to have arguments and disputes. We do not want to try and hurt one another or cut one another down. 
In fact, that word for sharp disagreement, that provoking argument that Paul and Barnabas had, that word is used only one other time in the New Testament. It's Hebrews 10. Let us, continue, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up is that same idea of provoke. Stirring up, provoking. We can do that toward good or toward evil. The choice, that's the choice we have in all of our relationships. Are we trying to build one another up or are we trying to cut one another down? Sometimes disagreements, conflicts, these things are unavoidable. But our desire should always be peace. Paul will write later on in Romans 12, he'll say, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And look at 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as far as depends on you, do what you can, what you can control to be at peace with others. You ha as you have the ability to do so, seek peace with one another. We want to be a people who seek unity and peace with one another to a degree. I'm going to put a caveat on what Paul is saying. To a degree, because unity at all costs is not what we see happen in this passage. Sometimes separation is the best course of action. It does not say they had this big argument and then they just kind of let it go and continued on. No, they separate. They go literally in opposite directions, sailing away from each other. And like I said, as far as we have record, we don't know that they ever re really truly reconcile. Yes, we want peace. We want unity. We, but we can't ignore or minimize issues of conflict. Right? Let's all just get along and don't worry about our differences. It sounds like a nice idea, but it can actually be very damaging to relationships and community. If we are allowing our brothers and sisters to openly, actively pursue sin without going to them and pursuing them in love for their betterment, really what we're doing is saying we don't really care about you. The other way that this shows up is that with this notion that there's this idea in culture that to love someone, to care for someone, means that we have to fully embrace and support every decision they make. Right? If you don't support me, then you don't clearly love me. And it's just not true. I can love you and not agree with your decisions. We can debate and argue and at the end of the day end up on different sides. That doesn't mean I don't care for you. Right? If love equals unconditional support of every decision, it would be chaos. If you're a parent, if your child... You're walking down the street and your child sees their friend across the street and they go to run into the street to go meet them. What are you going to do? You're going to yell. You're going to get stern. You're going to put on mom or dad voice. You're going to even grab them and pull them back. And they're going to be upset with you. Do you do that because you don't love them? No, you do that because you don't want them to get hit by a car. You do that because you love them. We don't support every decision, every action, people that we care about, if it's going to hurt them physically, mentally, spiritually. We don't have to support those decisions, and we can do that and still love someone. Just because we don't agree doesn't mean we can't have a relationship, especially between Christians. Because at the end of the day, the thing that unites and bonds us together is not politics or race or gender or economics. It's the gospel. That supersedes everything else, and it allows us to be gracious with one another and to hold different views and opinions without breaking the relationship. We can't just ignore our differences and ignore our conflict. That doesn't mean the relationship is healthy. Just because, oh, nobody fights, nobody ever brings up any issues, so clearly everything's healthy. No, that's not what that means. Just sweep it under the rug is the expression. Make it so it's not visible. 
we had some guests over this weekend, and, and we were cleaning the house, and, you know, time was ticking away, and so I start cleaning, like, you do the deep clean, but then, like, as time's getting closer and closer, you start to do that quick clean, where it's just like, ah, I'm going to just throw that in the closet. I'm going to shove that under the bed. Look, it's clean. It's not really clean. It's just out of sight, right? We sweep everything under the rug. We make it so it's not visible. We ignore it. So that thing, that conflict, that issue, it's not in our face. The dirt's still there. The conflict's still there. It's just not on the surface. And you keep sweeping things under the rug and sweeping things under the rug. And eventually, all that dirt, all that conflict is going to make a nice little hill that someone's going to trip over and break their neck. Ignoring or avoiding conflict is how relationships and churches die. Because over time, things fester and things grow, and resentment festers and grows, and hate forms, and it corrupts things, and it corrupts relationships. So at times, separation is necessary. At times, it is the best course of action. That's what we see here in Acts. And again, though, i got to give a caveat on this. Because yes, sometimes separation is the best course of action, but we're not talking about running out on your marriage because it's hard. We're not talking about even running out on church because it's hard. What we're talking about here is a specific type of relationship within the church. We're talking about relationship between Christians in the confines of community and service and church relationships. Sometimes space is the best way to move forward. Other relationships have other caveats to them. Does that make sense? Yes? This is not like, you know, I don't want like, someone to come to me three months from now and be like, hey, remember that time you preached Acts 15 and you told me that I can just run away when things get hard because separation is best? No, that's not what I'm saying. Disagreements are going to happen. That doesn't mean that we allow those conflicts to stop us from doing what we are made to do and being who God has made us to be, namely the lights of the world. Paul and Barnabas have this disagreement, and neither one of them decides, you know what, the church and all those Christians are too broken, they're all liars, I'm done with all of it. They split up so they can go their separate ways and continue to minister for the sake and purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will disagree as a church, we, as people. We're going to have conflict. It doesn't mean we stop pursuing the Great Commission. It doesn't mean we stop pursuing being a church and being people who want to become more Christ-like and proclaim Christ. It doesn't mean we just put a stop to all that because we had an issue with another Christian. We continue to pursue our call to be lights in the world. And we can do that because God can and will use every situation good and bad, to do a work in us and through us. God doesn't waste time, and he doesn't waste our experiences. If we truly believe that in the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all things at all times, then that means he is using all things at all times, even the disputes, conflicts, and issues of our lives, to shape us and glorify himself. All things are redeemable, even hurt, even conflict, even arguments. Now, that doesn't mean all things will be redeemed on this side of eternity. But the power of the gospel is to take things that are hurt and damaged and broken and restore them, reconcile them, to take two things that were once put together and are broken and to put them back together. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel did for each one of us in our relationship with God. And the same can be true for our relationships with one another if we allow ourselves to be driven and directed by the gospel. God can and does use all things, even the mess of our lives, to glorify himself. And what we see here is that instead of one group going out and preaching the gospel and encouraging Christians, 
Now, the evangelistic efforts and the encouragement efforts are doubled because we got two groups going out still doing the same thing, preaching the gospel. It also leads to Paul meeting someone who is going to become very dear to him and very important in the explosion of the church. Let's pick it up in chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Paul goes to Derby, Lystra, and he meets a young man named Timothy. Timothy's mother is Jewish. His father was Greek. He was well-spoken of, respected. People liked him. He had, a great, uh, in, he had a great relationship with those in the area. Paul takes such a liking to Timothy. He wants the young man to join him in his evangelistic journeys. He wants to train him up. He wants to spend time with him and see him grow in his faith. But because Timothy's father was Greek, he was not circumcised, even though his mother was Jewish. Because in that day, in that culture, dad's going to make the decision on those things. Dad wasn't Jewish, so Timothy's not getting circumcised. And so before Timothy begins to accompany Paul, and later on, he will go on to become a pastor of a church in one of the hardest cities in that day to pastor in the city of Ephesus. Before all of that, Paul, it says, takes Timothy and circumcises him. Why? We get the why in verse 3, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Why did Paul have to circumcise Timothy in order for him to do ministry? I mean, the easy question is like, how's anybody going to know, right? I mean, it's a pretty intimate thing. They're going to know because in that day, they're just going to ask. They knew Timothy's background. They knew they, people, when we say they, are the Jewish people that Paul and Timothy would meet and engage with from city to city. And knowing Timothy's background, knowing his heritage, they were going to ask if he's circumcised. But why does it matter? I mean, didn't we just go through all of chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, with the leaders from Jerusalem and the leaders from Antioch, they all get together, they say, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Yeah, that's what they said. And isn't the whole point of much of the New Testament writings by Paul specifically, like the book of Galatians, all about how they are no longer, no longer under the law and no longer under circumcision, and that's not a requirement to follow Christ? Yes. So then, what is happening here? Is Paul just confused? Is Paul doubling back on what he's already believed and what he's going to write later on? Why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Slash, why was Timothy okay with being circumcised? By Jewish law, Timothy was a Jew. Because his mom was Jewish and his grandmother was Jewish, he was a Jew. But because he was not circumcised, he would be known as an apostate Jew. Someone who, didn't, who has walked away from the traditions of Judaism. Which means, basically, they would consider him as rejecting the faith. That yes, you're technically Jewish, but you're not really one of us. So he would be excluded from worshiping in temple. He would be excluded from really true community and belonging to a synagogue because of this. Again, why does that matter? What's been Paul's standard way of ministry so far? For those who have been with us as we've looked at the back of Acts, Paul goes to a city, and where's the first place he goes? Synagogue. 
Paul wanted to continue to have access and influence and connection in that way. Paul would go to a city, preach in the synagogue, preach the gospel. Those there would believe, would, would start to believe. Others would hear it, ask questions, and he would have access to more and more people. If Paul wanted to continue doing ministry this way, he couldn't be traveling with and fellowshipping with an apostate Jew. Also, Timothy wouldn't be able to even join him. And for Timothy... He wouldn't have any kind of say or influence or credibility with the Jewish people that he would interact with. Because once they knew he wasn't circumcised, they'd write him off as an outsider. You abandoned us. You're not really one of us. He would have no standing with any of them. This was not about circumcising Timothy so that he'd be accepted by God or be accepted by Christians or even be accepted by Jewish Christians. This was about giving Timothy and and continuing to give Paul the ability to engage with and interact with Jewish communities in an effort to preach the gospel to them that they might receive it and be saved. It was a procedure that had to be done for a very practical purpose of ministry. But the way it's written, right, it's very passive when it comes to Timothy. Paul took him and circumcised him, as if Timothy had, like, no say in the matter. But that's not true. Timothy chose to accompany Paul, and he chose to have this procedure done so that he could follow this calling in ministry. He is not some passive bystander. He understood the reason why. He did what was necessary to help remove a potential barrier from other people being able to engage with and hear the gospel, this message that he had, been, he had believed and he wanted to share with others. And so he said, I'm going to do what I have to do so that I can remove barriers from people I haven't even met yet to hearing the gospel. We talked about it when we looked at chapter 15. As Christians, we have to be willing to lay down our rights in order to allow others to hear the gospel. That's what Timothy is doing here. And so Timothy is circumcised, and he joins Paul and Silas in the ministry. And in doing that, they're ministering to believers and encouraging and strengthening and seeing other churches grow in numbers. One of the ways they did that was by delivering this letter. That's part of the reason Paul has Silas with him. He brings this letter that was written from the Jewish leaders from in Jerusalem, the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, that said that Gentile Christians are not under the law. That the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for our sins and rose again. He displayed his power and authority over all so that there is now forgiveness and new life for those who believe, both here now and in eternity, and it has nothing to do with your circumcision status. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that saves someone and brings them into the family of God. It is not any act or action on our behalf that can do this. This reality brings strength and confidence and an increase in the churches as they continue to enjoy the grace of God through Christ. And so Paul continues to travel along, and as he is traveling, we see his relationship with God take a forefront in the way he is directed and led in ministry. Go to verse uh, verse 6 of chapter 16. And they went through the region of uh, Phygia, sorry, uh, they went through the region of Phygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul has a plan to preach in the area of 
Asia, probably trying to get to the city of Ephesus next, as that would have been the next major city going north. The Holy Spirit stops him. We don't know how, but the Holy Spirit said, nope, don't go that way. So then Paul pivots and he says, okay, we're going to try and go to Bithynia. We're going to go to the west. But again, the Holy Spirit stops him. We aren't told how the Spirit communicated with Paul during those times, though we've seen in other places words of prophecy, visions happen, so it could have been something like that. Whether it's Paul being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, being in tune enough to decipher that, or, or God just straight up telling him, this is God telling me I need to adjust things accordingly, we don't have clear communication on that. But what we do see is that his relationship with God dictates and determines his steps and movements. Paul was an active studier of the word. He was a Pharisee. He had scripture in his heart and in his mind. And he continued to study and process as he grew and he, as he grows. He studied God's word. He spoke with God in prayer. He listens in prayer. He slows down and gets quiet so he can hear the Holy hear from the Holy Spirit and then follow and respond. But why would the Holy Spirit stop him? Why would the Holy Spirit stop Paul from doing something good like preaching the gospel to places where the gospel hadn't gotten yet? Why would God ever tell someone, don't preach there? Aren't we supposed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Isn't that what Paul's trying to do? God's timing and plan and strategy is perfect. Just because you and I don't understand it all the time doesn't mean it's incorrect. God's instruction to Paul to avoid these areas at this time didn't mean he was writing them off forever, that he would never have an opportunity and those people would never have an opportunity to hear the gospel. In fact, we know Paul gets to Ephesus, and we're going to see it in the book of Acts. And we know through the opening of Peter's first letter that the gospel gets preached to churches in, within Asia. So this was not a situation of God saying, don't go to those people, they're too far gone, I'm not trying to save them, they don't need to hear the gospel. But rather, he was saying, Paul, not right now. I understand what you want to do. I got something else in mind for you. Sometimes the way that God leads us and directs us is not just through open doors, right? I'm going to pursue this thing and pursue this open door because it clearly is from God. Sometimes God leads and directs us by shutting doors, by shutting off opportunities. No is a valid answer to, from God. When people say God doesn't answer prayers, no, he always answers them. You just don't like the answer. Not right now is a valid answer to prayer. Paul will write in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, a no, a stop, a not right now, it has a purpose and reason from God. Because again, when we consider the full scope of the power and involvement of God in our lives, we realize there's a reason all things happen. And as long as we still have breath in our lungs, there's a reason we are here. We see in this, though, Paul's adaptability. He had plans. He had ideas. He had a passion and a, and a tunnel vision at times to say, I'm going to do this. But he was able, able to adjust those things. Right? We have ideas about how the church should look, how ministry should go, how our lives should go, how our relationships should go. We plan, we make these plans and ideas, and then God says, no, I'm, I'm going to put you a different way. I know you had these experiences and you thought they were going to lead over here, but instead I'm, I'm going to send you this way. Paul was adaptable, and his adaptability led him to Troas well, and while there he gets a vision of a man saying, come and help us. Sometimes in the Bible we have things like, you know, in, uh, in Daniel we have the right handwriting on the wall. 
and nobody knew what it meant, or we have you know, different leaders getting visions and dreams and nobody could interpret them. We get revelation, or even in the second half, Daniel, you get revelation and you get you know, the creature with 12 eyes and 16 horns and a bunch of crowns on his head, and each thing represents something else. And we have these parts of the Bible where it kind of can be hard and tricky to understand, and, and God's saying one thing through something else. But then also, sometimes God just straight up says, hey, go over there. This is what I want you to do. Paul understood. God was sending him a message. He had a vision of a man from Macedonia. I don't know how he knew he was Macedonian, but he had a vision of a Macedonian man who said, come and help us. Come to Macedonia. So Paul said, all right, we got to go. And I want you to see in verse 10. I don't know if you guys caught it, but in verse 10 it says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. That's a big change for us. Because all throughout this, Luke has been writing this, and they went and did this, and Peter went over here, and that group did this. It goes from they and them to we sought to go into Macedonia. Luke, at some point here, has joined the party, and he's traveling with Paul, once again giving credibility to the events written in Scripture. As this writer is not catching some of this secondhand, he's getting this firsthand because he's an eyewitness to these events. So Luke has joined the party as well. Paul rolls deep. He's got like five or six guys with him at this point. And so they go to Macedonia, and we're going to finish in this last section um, right here. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what, Paul, what was said by Paul. After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the team ends up in Philippi, the city named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Philippi, by this point, was under the district of Macedonia. The kingdom has been split. The Roman kingdom has been split into four districts. It's a major city and specifically a Roman colony. That means it would be under Roman law and modeled after Roman constitutions. You can save that for next week as we continue on in Acts, but I'll just put that out there. It's under Roman law. We'll come back to that. So Paul's routine, we already said, is he'd get to a new city, go find a synagogue, go preach. He can't do that here. Paul doesn't do that because apparently there wasn't, a, there wasn't enough of a constitution of Jewish men in Philippi to warrant a synagogue. In any city, you needed at least 10 Jewish men in that city to constitute a quorum that would suffice to get a synagogue, to have a building. That apparently was not the case in Philippi at this time. And so in place of an official synagogue, there was a place outside the city near the river where a group of women gathered together to pray and hold an informal Sabbath Jewish service. This would not be recognized by the Jews as an official synagogue or meeting due to the lack of male leadership. But it does reveal the heart and dedication of the women in that area who said, even though this isn't seen as legit or real or sanctioned by Jewish law, we're still going to meet, we're still going to hold these worship services. Just because this wasn't an official gathering also doesn't stop Paul and his companions from going and doing what they always did. 
they found those who worshipped God through Judaism and shared with them the message of the gospel, how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of this truth that they knew. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus sends out the apostles to go and do healings and prayer at one point. And he gives them instruction on when they go. And one of the instructions was this. He tells them, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay with them, stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Find out who is worthy and let your peace come upon them. This idea has been come to known as find a person of peace. A person who is willing to hear you out. A person who is willing to support you. A person who may or may not believe what you believe, but is willing to come alongside you in that endeavor. Open some doors. Open some relationships for you to be able to do what God has called you to do. Go find a person who is willing to accept and listen and even help you in spreading and connecting the gospel to others. This is, in a way, what Paul was often doing by going to the synagogues. He was looking for people of peace, people who would hear and believe and welcome him in and give him some credibility in these cities. And this wasn't going to be stopped by a lack of synagogue or even the lack of Jewish men. So Paul found some people of peace, one in particular in verse 14. She is known as a worshiper of God. She is known as someone who followed the God of Judaism. We always got to be aware and be searching for people of peace. As we're talking about trying to be lights of the world and trying to connect with people, look for those people of peace. Who are those people in your neighborhood, in your, on your block, in your apartment building, at school, at work? Who's that person who's willing to have the conversation and maybe open a door to another harder conversation? In verse 14, one of the women there is named Lydia. She's from a town that was known for its production of purple dye. Purple dye came from a very rare certain plant, which made fabrics and rugs very expensive if they had this dye in them. So if she was a seller of purple goods, as it says, it means she was well compensated for her efforts. Lydia was rich. And so Paul spoke, as Paul spoke, it says in verse 14, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I heard it said this week, I was listening to somebody and. They said, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that required it. Paul was preaching, yes, Paul was preaching the gospel. But it was God who opened up Lydia's heart to the gospel message. To help her to admit her need for a savior. To believe that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross for her sins in her place. And to choose Jesus as her Lord and savior. It wasn't about the impressiveness of Lydia or her money or influence or reputation. Those things couldn't buy or earn God's favor. It was the grace of God in that place at that time which led her to hear and believe and accept the message of the gospel as her own. And that is the exact same thing that still happens today. We share the gospel. Yes, we are called to go and preach the gospel with our words and in our actions. But we don't save anyone. We don't change anyone's hearts. It is what the God is what God does, what the Holy Spirit does to open hearts to allow them to receive the word of God. And in verse 15, it says, in response to what Paul was teaching and God was doing in her heart, Lydia is baptized, her and her household. We see an immediate response to her salvation and baptism as she implores the men to stay as her guest at the house. She wasn't going to take no for an answer. She, answer. she prevailed upon them. She had a desire to show and live in response to the kindness and spiritual hospitality that was showed to her by God by showing some tangible physical hospitality to these men. 
Paul had a plan and a goal for his travels, for where he was going and what he was going to do. He knew where he wanted to be and what he wanted to do next. It was good and helpful and God-honoring that he wanted to go into these cities. But God had other plans for Paul. God had a divine appointment set up for Paul for this woman on this riverbank. Because Paul was humble enough to let go of his own plans, because he was sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit, because he was adaptable enough to the situation, he found his way to Lydia. And God brought about the conversion of the first European believer right there on that riverside in this makeshift synagogue. It is good to have dreams and plans and aspirations about what we want to do. We can't just float through life, right? We've got to have goals, we've got to have plans, we've got to have an idea of what's coming next. An idea of how we can best glorify God through what we're doing in our lives. It's good to lean into the gifts and talents that God has blessed you with in order to glorify God. But in the midst of all of that, we can't be so locked into, I'm going to do it my way and my ideas and my desires that we miss out on the divine appointments that God has set up for us. Right? Ephesians 2 said, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time. God has set up divine appointments for each one of us because he's made you to have a certain kind of demeanor, a certain gifts and talents and abilities. You have divine appointments set up ahead of time by God if you are willing to step into those moments. There are always going to be things in our lives that opportunities where we can step in where it seems like I wanted to go here, this made all the sense in the world, but God didn't let me, and it's going to lead you to something else. You might not even realize it in the time, but there are opportunities for you divine moments where you can be the light of the world that God has made you to be. There's also going to be times in our lives, things that we go through that seem hard and messy and not quite right. There's maybe a conflict in your relationship. Maybe just a no from God on something that you were sure was going to be a yes. Things don't often go as we plan or expect them to. That's why we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's lead in his word, in prayer, in community with others, putting ourselves an opportunity to teach ourselves to learn how to listen to the Holy Spirit and take a step when he tells us to. Because we want to be ready for those opportunities when God presents them. We want to be able to speak truth and have no reason why people should ignore the truth that we have. We want to strengthen and encourage one another, build up and lift up believers and help be part of what God is doing to see new people come into the faith and join the family of God. If we will trust in the Spirit's leading and follow it and be faithful to what God will do, God will take care of the rest. If we are willing to take a step and be open and step into those moments, God is going to do the work. If we will trust the Spirit's lead and follow it and be faithful to what we know, God is going to take care of the rest and open hearts to invite in those who need to be reconciled to him. It is a great joy and privilege to be part of what God is doing. He's inviting us to be part of him, his plan to redeem and reconcile the world back to himself. So be willing to engage and be flexible. And as issues come up and conflict arise, trust that the Holy Spirit's leading and the gospel's power to give you wisdom and insight into reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, we are the lights of the world. It's not, hey, if you have a chance, go ahead and shine that light. Jesus says, you are the lights of the world. End. So let us shine brightly to point people to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's got to be the goal. That's got to be the driving point, is to glorify and make much of him who saved us, knows us, loves us, and made us to be the lights of the world to glorify him.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. God, we thank you that you give us in your word a picture into the realness of life, that not everything is perfect and protected, that you become a Christian and it's not all just sunshine and rainbows, that conflict still happens, disagreements, discussions, debates, these things are part of life and we can have them and still glorify you in them. God, help us to seek out reconciliation. Help us to be a people that seeks after unity. To not hide from conflict, but to embrace it as an opportunity to see reconciliation happen, to see the gospel play out in our lives. But God, we also know that there are times where we need space and separation. And give us wisdom. Help us, God. We Life is hard. People are complicated. We need your wisdom more than anything else. We need your wisdom. We need your grace. We need you. God, getting through day to day at jobs, as, as parents, as friends, as neighbors, as siblings, as, as family members, God, it, it's hard. And we, we need you. More and more of you. More of your grace, more of your wisdom. This world needs more of your justice. God, we need more of you. We want more of you. Help us to pursue you deeper. Because oftentimes, left to my own devices, I'm not going to all the time like I should. God, help us to be in your word when we don't feel like being in your word, to lift up in prayer and voice those things and voice those concerns and spend that time to pursue you make much of you in our lives, even just through the time that we spend pursuing you. Because we know there's life there. We know there's hope and help and joy there. But it's so easy for us to get distracted, to let conflicts and disputes and arguments and plans and all these things just mess with what you're doing in our lives. God, you got plans for us. You made us for a purpose. You didn't just make us to take up space. You got a you got a plan for each one of us. You got multiple plans for each one of us. You made us who we are. You put us where we are for a reason. God, help us to step into those reasons. God, we thank you for people like Paul who are faithful, who trusted you even when it didn't necessarily make sense, who trusted you and because of that the gospel continued to go forward. Help us to be to do likewise, to trust you even when it doesn't make sense so that we might have opportunities to make much of you and shine our lights brightly. God, we thank you and praise you.